Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, certainly. So my name is Celia Haig-Brown. I work at York University. I'm currently the Associate Vice President of Research. I'm a professor, a full professor in the Faculty of Education. Uh, that's kind of the official stuff, but I am a person who is very committed to research and work related to Indigenous people and communities. As a Euro-Canadian, um, I have found most of my life that I've been very aware of Indigenous people, who they are, whose traditional land I've been living on, and that has informed all of the work that I do. Um, my, my major uh, formal um, scholarly work began with a program called the Native Indian Teacher Education Program. It was a UBC program, University of British Columbia program, offered off campus in Kamloops, British Columbia. And I got a job, having spent five years as a teacher in the schools there, I got a job working as the coordinator of that program. And I'd say that's really where my super formal indigenous education began, in that I worked very intensely with um, groups of uh, indigenous people who had decided to return to university, many of them mature students, some of them coming directly from high school, uh, in order to study to be elementary school teachers. Some of them continued the program and became elementary teachers. A lot of them continued the program, became teachers, and then moved on into other careers and uh, other positions. So it was, it was totally fascinating for me. I got a much clearer and deeper understanding of the history of Indigenous people in Canada, the official histories, both Indigenous official histories and, and non-Indigenous histories. It wasn't something I'd spent a whole lot of time doing before that. So um, we'll do a little bit of maybe biographical oh, yeah. stuff to start before we get into oh, the into core the, the work. Into the core of the work. Oh, so, how did you get? And okay. If you want, again, yep, <laughs> share, yep. share what you. Will. No. It, um, so, with this program in Kamloops, was that during PhD work, or was this before? No. The um, okay. So the program in Kamloops started when I had I just had a bachelor's degree. Okay. Um, and I, I had a bachelor's degree and a teaching certificate. So I had been working in schools. Um, in the Kamloops area, teaching biology and English. I had a pretty strong relationship with a lot of my Indigenous students because I was aware of indigeneity. I was aware of uh, some of the complexities of Indigenous kids in schools. So I kind of went out of my way to make sure that they felt welcomed and, and did well in the classes. Um, so I think that's what got me into this position. But backing way up, um, I'm a British Columbia person. I was, I was actually born in Seattle because my mother's mother lived there and she went home to have her babies. But I always lived in Campbell River. My family was living there on the banks of the Campbell River. Uh, my parents were very much, um, had a deep understanding of Indigenous people as well and the relationship that they had to Indigenous people. So I just kind of grew up with this as an integral part of who I was. I knew for sure, and this is actually in the film, but I knew that the place where we parked our canoe on the, because we lived right on the banks of the Campbell River, was the place where the Kwakwakwak people had also parked their canoes. So I was always very conscious of almost like ghostly figures there. Um, as I said, I, I think I say it in the film, I didn't, I didn't know how to say where were they gone. I knew where the reserve was. I knew many people who lived on the reserve. In the 50s, when uh, the law was lifted that had prohibited 
uh, Indigenous people from dancing and singing, you know, the potlatch law. When that was lifted, um, my, my parents and I, and, and siblings, but I think I was the main one home at the time, were invited to go to the dances as they began dancing again. So, as I say, it was an integral part of my life. Um, indigenous friends came to the house. I had a surrogate grandmother, I like to call mm -hmm. her, Daisy Price, who was always there. I loved sitting on her lap and listening to her stories. So, it was always a, a part of my life. Um, then I went to UBC, did my work there. Uh, and moved to Kamloops as a teacher, and that's then back to the Native Indian Teacher Ed program. Okay, and that, in, and then through that program, that inspired you to pursue further. Yes, okay. yes, definitely it did. <laughs> um, and I, I like to give credit actually to the students that I had in that program because many of them were, as I said, mature students. They were people with families, and they came back to school. A lot of them were women. Most of them were women. And so uh, one of the pieces of the Native Te Indian Teacher Ed program was that the white people involved, like me, had a strong commitment to work our way out of the program. So once there were qualified Indigenous people mm. to move into our positions, we were prepared to leave. So that was pretty much a public declaration on my part to the students in the, in the program in the Kamloops Centre. I. Um, the moment came when one of the students had graduated and had a few years of experience and said, yep, Celia, I think I want to do that job. And at that point, I thought to myself, oh, man, like, I love working with university students. Now what am I going to do? So I took my three children, and I left my cowboy husband, and I went and did my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Inspired by the indigenous women I'd seen going to do really complicated work of moving to another place, doing their work, looking after their kids, etc. So, yeah, that's when I did my PhD. In BC? I did it at UBC. All of my degrees are from UBC, despite the fact that we're told that, you know, you should definitely not do all your degrees <laughs> in one institution. It hasn't served me badly. <laughs> <laughs> and then how did you get from UBC to York, where we currently are? Yeah, so when I finished my, actually before I finished my PhD, I started applying for jobs. I had three children and I needed to support them. And uh, I got a job at Simon Fraser. So I taught at Simon Fraser for six years, till my first sabbatical, until I got tenure. I was in a position called, well, actually, when they hired me, there were two positions I applied for. One was sociology of education, and the other one was curriculum, curriculum studies. And I asked the dean which one I was hired for, and he wasn't quite sure. So <laughs> <laughs> I was in one of those positions in the faculty of education there. And I've never been hired into, since the Native Indian Teacher Ed program, I've never been hired into a position in Native Studies. I purposefully do not apply for those positions. But one of the things I do is make sure that I incorporate into any course I'm teaching the fact that whatever that subject matter is, in this land we now call Canada, whatever the subject is begins with land and indigenous people. And I can certainly do that in education, but I can do that in almost any subject you want to run by me. <laughs> so when I taught a course, for example, called Foundations of Education, I would say to my student teachers on the first day as they came into class, the foundations of Canadian education are land and indigenous people. And we'd go from there. At some point, I'd let them know that some people think sociology, history, and philosophy are the foundations of education. But uh, <laughs> those are the disciplinary foundations. But the, I think the epistemological and material foundations are really land and indigenous people. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> is that, um, this may sidetrack, but this is, this is what I like doing. Sidetrack. Yes, yes. Is that, um, would you, in terms of um, the approach to education, education, <laughs> is that a, a unique 
approach to start or like is, is education a very because I'm not familiar with it as a, a discipline a discipline as an oh. academic is it that like is education a very is it very I guess the easiest way similar to other disciplines in the sense that it it is disciplinary it has its roots that don't um, necessarily correspond to uh, starting with like land that's and, a, and, that's, and a, that's a lovely question and, indigeneity yeah <laughs> um, that's a lovely question education I would say is a field of study I'm not sure it could be called a discipline okay. it certainly has I mean you can get into the historical roots and you can look at Rousseau and John Dewey and you know Plato Plato and you know you can go back as far as you want with those philosophers but what I actually like to say about education and I can do it now particularly from the position I'm in now I consider education to be undisciplined in the best possible sense of the word because it is focused on people's learning, teaching and learning, it really can go into almost any direction. So it's very easy for people in education to consider themselves philosophers of education, sociologists of education, anthropologists of education. If I were to declare a conventional discipline, I would say anthropology of education, primarily because my doctoral work, I really focused on ethnography as an approach to doing research, critical ethnography, I would say. But Yes, in terms of my particular statement that the foundations of education are, that's an unusual approach. But I would take the same approach if I were in political science, if I were in nursing, if I were wherever. Because if you think about it, on this land, the first, uh, the first moments of people working on healing bodies would have been indigenous people on this land thinking about traditional medicines. If you think about the politics, you could look at the political structures that the various indigenous uh, nations had as they ran their affairs. So I would argue that in any discipline, but you know, that's what I like to do to kind of <laughs> disrupt um, you know, the European roots of our, of our disciplines. I'm good with that. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you're. <laughs> Not everybody is. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, with on that then, uh, because one of the the main reason that prompted us speaking today was that you recently premiered. Uh, a, is it safe to call it a documentary film? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Um, so you recently premiered a, a documentary film. Listen to the land, um, and then I'll try to segue that previous discussion into this one. How how is a as an education academic, um, how how does the where does the documentary film approach come from? Is it a research project? Is it a creative project? Is it all those things? Should I just let you describe it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, so I moved into documentary film um, a few projects ago, two Shirk grants ago, okay. actually. Um, and Shirk has been amazing. Social Science Humanities Research Council of Canada has been amazing at this funding. I, um, yeah, it's a bit of a long story, my first documentary, so I hope you can oh, bear yeah. with me. Uh, my master's thesis was a series of 13 interviews with people who had attended the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Okay. I did my master's work in, the, the time I was doing the actual research was in 1986. So I did my interviews and I wrote it up and I finished my degree in 1986. So that was considerably before many people were talking about residential schools. And the reason that I did it was that, mm, 
Well, I was involved in a rodeo outfit for 12 years. So my ex-husband and I and a couple of other people had a rodeo business. So when I wasn't teaching school, <laughs> fortunately rodeos are on the weekend, I was at rodeos. And many Indigenous people are involved in rodeo. Indian cowboys, I know it's a bit of a contrast, but this is how it works. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, Buffy St. Marie has a good song called Indian Cowboy at the Rodeo. Um, so as we were driving home late on Sunday night, having worked all weekend and partied all weekend, because rodeos always involve party, we would tell each other stories. So in particular, I think of Julie Antoine, who was a very good friend of mine. And she, we would talk about, you know, parts of our lives, whatever. And she began to tell me stories about residential schools. Well, I knew where the school was in Kamloops. I knew it existed. I knew kids who had stayed there and come to the public school, because by that time it was just a residence as opposed to a school itself. But I had no idea when I started hearing the story she was telling. And I thought, OK, here am I, fairly knowledgeable about Indigenous people as the original people of Canada. I didn't know these stories. I had no idea the, the extent of what had gone on. So I decided that I would interview my friends um, who had attended the school or whose parents had attended the school. And some of them said to me, you need to talk to my parents if you're going to do this. They're right. the ones who've been there and they can tell you. And so I interviewed them for the, for the uh, master's degree. And I produced a book called Resistance and Renewal. And it got published. I was very happy. I will say that the University of BC Press, the editor at the time, when I showed her my thesis, um, refused to publish it and said, we don't, publish, um, we don't publish books from a single perspective. Well, it's not a single perspective. I've got 13 people here. We don't publish them. Um, and not only that, one of my friends taught in a residential school, and she said it wasn't like that at all. I thought, well, that's very interesting. I guess I'm not supposed to be an academic because I'm clearly not doing it right. <laughs> I took it to a commercial press, and uh, there was a, a man, Randy Fred, who's from Port Alberni and from the Nuchalneth Nation, I believe. Yeah, Nuchalneth Nation. Um, and he was very excited by the book. He had attended residential school himself. He agreed to write the introduction and publish it. It has been in print ever since, since it was published in 88, and it's still in print. So, long story to get me to filmmaking. Um, one of the things I really liked about that book is that it was not only read in university classrooms, and it has been read in history, anthropology, education courses. Um, it was also picked up by people in the community. And I would get m messages from people, not just even in Canada. Like, I had a Welsh student who came to my door one day and said, oh my god, this was my life. I was in a school like this in England. Um, I had people from... Um, Nigeria, who, who talked about exactly this kind of colonial school that they had experienced. And so it really had currency. Well, then I went on to be more of an academic, and I did my dissertation, and it got published by UBC Press. And <laughs> I did a collect, series of collected essays, that, historical essays, that got published by UBC Press. And I published my referee journal. You articles. figured it out enough. I figured that, right? it out, yeah. Or how to do it first. Acquiesced enough. That, I guess. Know. Well, that was my concern. <laughs> so then I thought, well, that's really nice, but I want to do something now, once I was a full professor I thought okay I've done all the things I have to do for that I would really like to produce a piece of scholarship that has the same currency that resistance and renewal had as a text by that time uh, my niece was a documentary filmmaker and mm. not only that she was the child of one of the people I had interviewed ie my sister-in-law I started to think how interesting it would be to interview the children and grandchildren of the people that I had interviewed originally in the residential school book about their relationship to education broadly defined. 
So I got hold of my niece and said, would you come and work with me? We could do a really cool film, and this is how you do education, you make film. My niece said, oh, auntie, 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 I do experimental documentary, I don't do talking heads. I said, no, that's why I want you, you do beautiful film. So she agreed to come and work with me, and that got me into filmmaking. So we did, the first film we did was called Palkilk, Coming Home in the Sopapam language, which is Kamloops area. And indeed, I went back and interviewed the children and grandchildren, and actually interviewed some of the original people as well. And we put together that film, which was accepted by the Native American Film Festival, the Smithsonian's New York Film Festival. And they bought it. It's part of their permanent collection. And it, they toured it around to the Indian market in Santa Fe, et cetera. So we're quite excited about that. There was so much footage, and I couldn't bear to let it go, that we then did a second film called Cowboys, Indians, and Education. And uh, it's been to a few film festivals. It didn't go quite as hard and far as Palkilk did, but it's, it's done okay. So on to the next project. Um, yeah, that became also a documentary film. <laughs> I got more stories about that. <laughs> but that gives you a sense of how I got into film. And the currency. I mean, it has currency. It's easy. It's, yeah. it's accessible. It's movable. It's, yeah, works. So in term, so then the, the listen to the land, that's your most recent it is, yes. one? How yes. did, where did the genesis of that project? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So that project is also a bit complicated. Um, I was here in the Faculty of Education. I was also chair of Senate, so I got to know people acro across campus. I did various Senate committees. And one of the people I got to know was a faculty member from the Schulich School of Business, whose name was Wes Craig. He's since passed away, sadly. Um, but Wes came to me one day and he said, I'm working in um, communities looking at um, ethical business practices in communities particularly that are involved in extractive industry. And one of the places I'm working is an indigenous community in northern Quebec. He and his graduate students and a colleague from University of Guelph, Ben Bradshaw, had gone into the community of Kawawa Chickamash. Um, and this community is closely associated with Shefferville, which is an open pit iron ore mining community that actually Brian Mulrudy was the, was the head of the Iron Ore Company of Canada when they were mining there. It, that mine closed. Um, they shut it all down and left town. Um, however, the Nascapi people were still there. And what was going on when Wes came to see me is that the price of iron ore had gone up, uh, price of iron had gone up, and they were thinking of reopening the mines. By this time, the Nascapi themselves had invested in the mines. So they okay. were looking at jobs, possibilities, etc. So um, Wes and his students and his colleague uh, proceeded to do a survey with the people in the community. And they went to every single household and interviewed them about their knowledge needs as the mines were reopening. What did they need to know? What, what were the things that were on their minds? So there was everything from, you know, what are the jobs going to be to uh, how do we preserve language and culture in the face of this increasing uh, pressure of, of mining? Um, what about drug and alcohol issues? Because if there's more money, there could be problems with drug and alcohol. Um, it's a whole series of, uh, of knowledge needs. Wes then, very thoughtful man with a philosophy degree from Oxford, said to me, if this is going to have any kind of uh, currency, really it has to start with the kids in the schools to understand 
these are the things they need to know. The teachers need to understand these are what the kids, things the kids need to know in order to ensure that they're going to have a sustainable community in the, in the north. So would you come and work with the school? I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't even know where Sheffer was, let alone Koa with Chickamash. So off I went. Well, I don't believe in doing research with people that haven't had an opportunity to get to know who I am and I get to know who they are and we have some kind of relationship before research starts. So although Wes thought I was going there and doing research, I didn't think I was. So I took a couple of my doctoral students at different times and we did workshops with the school and uh, and spent time with the teachers thinking through this whole question and and basically got to an an emergent curriculum. How do we think about this, this curriculum and the curriculum needs in terms of the community and the kids there? Now, in the face of all of that, as I've already confessed, um, land is super important to me. And when you're thinking about mining, and we're thinking about the Nescapi, who are traditionally caribou hunters, back to your interest now in hunting, in the hunting in the land, um, the whole idea of trying to figure out how to how to create a sustainable community, sustainable in terms of economics, the environment and culture and language um, really comes down to how do you relate to the land? How do you figure out, how do you get back to being in good relation to the land? How do you create a good relationship with land? So that was really the focus we took as we went into the schools, talking to the teachers about this, saying how can you work with your kids, the students in your classes, to think this through? Because if they are to have a sustainable community, Kawawa Chickamash, these are the th- this, this is what matters. So um, I then spent, I guess, two years there working with teachers in the, in the schools, coming back and forth. It takes forever to get there, so I would go for a week at a time and do the work and then return and not be there for a long period of time, <laughs> and then back I'd go. It's, I hate that drop-in kind of relationship, but it was really all that I could do and still have a job here. <laughs> so um, after some time, I got more and more excited about the community. The, the, the thing that just hit me when I walked into the school was everybody was speaking Nescapi. Everybody in the office was speaking Nescapi. People answering the phone were speaking Nescapi. All the kids in the hallways were speaking Nescapi. Parents wandering around. Everybody was speaking Nescapi. I didn't understand a word that was being said. I know how, how to say Wache. <laughs> but, um, um, and that, in face of what's gone on with so many indigenous communities where language has been eroded, so seriously eroded, just, I mean, it blew me away. I thought, wow, what is this about? And as I went out into the community and got to know people at the Nescapi Development Corporation, the band office, um, people were all speaking Nescapi. So that was really what drew me in. And I thought, this is something that I would find interesting to tell the world about. Uh, in light of so much consternation being expressed in cities to the south, about um, you know the dire circumstances people in the north live in, the erosion of language in every single place, et cetera, et cetera. The Nescapi's community is quite healthy. They maintain the airport for Shefferville. They've managed to weather the storms of the rise and fall of iron ore prices. They have maintained their linguistic integrity, et cetera. So I thought, yeah, I'd like to do this. So I talked to chief and council and said, I've got this idea. And they went, sure, go ahead. So I applied for a grant. They gave me a letter of support. I applied for a grant through Shirk, got the grant, and off we went to make the film to show this is who the Nescapi are. And 
<laughs> and included in that film is a really strong focus on what it means to be a white researcher going to an indigenous community and doing this kind of work. And it can no longer be extractive, it has to be relational. So my hope is, and so far the, the response seems to be that this is the case, that the film also takes up the significance of researcher community relationship as we have a look at who the, the Nascapi are and what they're doing. The, the, those are going to be my follow-up type of questions because they're, they're it's, and I tend to talk to academics and white or settler Euro academics who are working with and in with indigenous people or in indigenous communities it's like I do like to focus at least dedicate some portion to like methods and methodology huge, and huge um, and whatever that however yep. they define it and understand it so so I so in terms of the, the you had said it there the decision to make to do the documentary what's done after relationships had been exactly built um, and so and then approval from from the community to do it yep. so in terms of like the kind of almost the practicalities of doing a documentary once approved like what what were the like how did you go about doing it was it like were you there for um, like was it one kind of long period of time or again was it just the constraints sure. of how sure. research works when you're not living yep. in the community and you have other um, commitments outside of it so was it similar to what you had described before you go for a week at a time and do it that way or let yeah. me tell you about it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the first thing I did was engage my niece to say, would you please come and co-direct with me because I thought there should be an Indigenous co-director, despite the fact she's from the Tsukotin Nation in BC and, uh, and the Nescapi are a very different and distinct group. She agreed, but what happened actually was that it was way too complicated. It's hard enough for me to get from Toronto to Kawawa Chikamash. She, by that time, had a baby um, she had a husband in Haida Gwaii, which was where they were living. So she was having to fly Haida Gwaii, Vancouver, Vancouver, Toronto, Toronto, Quebec City, Quebec City, Shefferville, and then look for childcare. So she came for the first trip, but it was wild and crazy. And we went, okay, <laughs> don't think this is gonna happen. Meantime, she had connected me with a um, Métis director of photography, Shane Belcourt, who's a very well-known filmmaker here in Toronto. So he continued to work as the director of photography. I, I just felt it was really important to have indigenous people involved. The next thing I did was not only hire um, doctoral students here to work with me as research associates, assistants, I mean, but also I had community-based research assistants. And I have to say, again, the funding I got from Shirk was amazing funding and it really allowed us to do this properly, it felt to me like. So I was very conscious of having um, community control of this process as much as possible. One of the first things we did at the recommendation of the chief was to set up an advisory committee of community people so that any time I was moving something forward, any ideas I was having, checked in with them all the way along. And he agreed to be on that committee as well, which was really important to have him there. But I had people from the, from the language committee, et cetera. Um, so the, the involvement of the community all the way along was just, had to be a significant part of what was happening. 
Um, some of the interviews, I mean, I've told you that a lot of people were, I mean, people all speak Nescapi. Yeah. Or everybody speaks Nescapi. Well, some of the elders only speak Nescapi. They either they don't want to speak English or they don't speak English. Um, so one of the jobs of the community-based research assistants was to help me with those interviews. So they would come and do the actual interview questioning. And, uh, and then I had translators, obviously, that I hired from the community to translate the, um, the interviews once we got to that point. So one of the things that I was very committed to doing was not asking the community for anything. No, no funding, nothing. Don't, don't give me anything. Here we are, a university, doing this kind of work, which we as a Canadian, as Canada, as a university community, me personally, we're going to benefit from this. We should be funding it. So we have been able to fund it fully, and that's been amazing. The, um, in addition to, the, well, the, the numbers of trips. Yeah, we did do the one week at a time um, because, I mean, you can't go for any shorter than that. And initially, I was planning to do two trips. Uh, I wanted to do one in the winter and then goose hunt in the spring is a really important continuing tradition. It's the time when the Nescapi, everything shuts down. The nation's offices shut down, the school shuts down, and everybody, not everybody, but <laughs> most people go out onto the land and it's for spring goose hunt because the geese are coming back and it's really exciting. Um, so I wanted to be sure to have those two things done. Well, when I told the advisory committee what I was thinking, uh, the chief said, you can't just come twice. You have to come in the summer. You have to <laughs> see that there's more than just snow. So I said, oh, okay, we'll have three trips. Thinking, I don't know if the budget can manage it, but we'll figure it out. So we did three trips. We probably should have done four, but we did three. So we have lots of summer footage as well. Um, yes, and we did the one week at a time, but we did, instead of doing two weeks of solid filming, when we were filming, interviewing, and then B-roll and uh, various things, uh, we had three one-week trips. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> Just, I mean, we had a sound guy and the director of photography and a research assistant came with me, one of my PhD students and myself. And we had like 11 bags of equipment that we were taking with us. We rented two pickups while we were there to move everything around. And yeah, it was exciting. Very exciting. Very complicated. And then in terms, so three trips over the course of a year? A year, yeah. Yeah, we did our first trip in January and we did our last trip in September of that year so it was during the year yeah and then from I get uh, I'll take a step back because it's, it's kind of a this is more a linguistic question mm -hmm. in terms of um, the, how do you conceive of the interviews for the documentary could like in a method like if we're gonna have a methodological like if someone was gonna ask you to write a, a methods paper which you might not to do. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, okay, I love great, great. I love, it's my bread and butter. I love math. How would you refer to, like, what, what would you describe the interview relationship, right? Because in a, in a disciplinary sense, like, you, some people would, would not recognize it. Like, you could easily just push it away and say it was data collection, but that's oh, so, yeah, right. that's so, uh, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it goes, yeah. you know, it goes back to, I, and I, uh, I like what you said, like, the extractive yes. part, because it also, kind of juxtaposed to the uh, what you were talking about in the documentary, but that it's an extractive relationship yep. to tens yep. universities to indigenous communities. We take and yep. they and maybe they, get something back to hopefully. Or maybe not. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, so like that's kind of where the question comes from. Or do you, I mean, 
academics are low to put labels on everything, so maybe there isn't an appropriate label for it. No, but it's I, I have to say, like I have for some time been very committed to research as conversation, and I actually have, I was talking to one of my students about it the other day, I have a, a Maori scholar, Russell, Russell Bishop, who in his doctoral dissertation, which is again from 1990s, I think, in it, he references an article I wrote where I talked about research as chat which maybe kind of fits with your podcast notion, mm. um, that that's really the ideal for me to get to such a level of relationship and informality that you actually have little conversations here and there. It, it partly has to do with, with building relationship. It also has to do with time and the place so that as you're you know moving from one place to another, you stop and say, oh, yeah, I was thinking about blah, blah. And the person says, oh, well, I've been thinking. And so you have these little snippets that also become part of the research. Now, if I, if I have to be ex incredibly honest, and I really do in relation to this piece of work, this is not how I usually do my work. I usually have, you know, I've been talking about the fact that I, you know, the, I return to the people with whom I'd done research I don't know, I guess it was 20 years before or something. Yeah, it was. It was at least 20 years before. So these are people with whom I have huge long-term relationships. With the Nescapi, despite the fact that my relationship with the Nescapi have deepened over these last five or six years, um, it's not the same level. And I still feel a little mm, hesitation about uh, seeing this as the ideal circumstance. Um, partly because, I mean, I'm getting towards the end of my career. It's, if I were, you know, in the middle, I'd be spending probably a lot more time with the Nescapi over the years. But uh, when they said to me, having seen the film the first time, the rough cut of the film, and they said, well, that's great, but you know, there's some things that aren't in there, and you don't have fishing in here, and we need another film. And I'm going, <laughs> over to you guys. I've done my bit. Um, you know, let's, let's find a way for you guys to do the next one. Um, so I feel a little, a little ambivalent, despite the fact that everything that's come from the community in relation to the film since it's been done has been incredibly positive. The, the other piece, so I did, I mean, the, the premiere in Toronto was here the other day, but in last January, I took the film in its fine cut. It was not rough cut, it was fine cut, but there was still opportunity to make changes. I took it to the community and that's where the premiere was. So I showed it first to chief and council, got their feedback, and then we feasted it in the community. And again, I had the money to get people to bring caribou and goose and fish, and we had a wonderful, a wonderful um, gathering. It was in the, in the school gym, because that's one of the big places there, and showed the film there. And for me, in some ways, that was the that was the real culmination of the work. Um, people came, the elders came, people who were in the film came. Not everybody was there that was in the film, some of them were elsewhere, but um, there were, I, I, I can't remember, 75, 80 people there to see the film, and it was everything from little kids to elders, etc. And quite often in gatherings like that, even when you're showing a film, it's kind of noisy and people are running around, whatever, none of that. Through this whole film, it was dead silence, <laughs> and people were watching the film. They were seeing themselves, they were seeing their community. And at the end, they clapped. And the scabby don't clap if they don't like something. So <laughs> I really just felt at that time, OK, OK, this is OK. Despite my concerns about the, the short time it felt like I'd been involved with the community, I think I did manage to listen very carefully to, 
to what it was they had to say. So they're pleased. And when we had the Toronto launch, uh, the chief and two of the community members that are in the film, and two of them had actually worked as research assistants with me, came down and they were the response panel to the film. Um, Again, I'm very happy about that. I'm showing it at Queen's at the end of the month, and another person who's in the film has agreed, another community member has agreed to come and be part of the response there. Um, Bishops has something lined up at a conference they're giving in March, and they're, um, one of my collaborators is at Bishops, and she's working to get community members to that showing as well. So as much as possible, I'm doing that. And again, the grant has given me the funding to allow me to do this. So they're not paying, I'm paying to have them come here. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm very happy. And oh, methodologically. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm no, that's drifting. fine. Yeah. But that's the method. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, was that when you were, um, I guess, the, the best way in terms of um, the question that I'm thinking about? Because obviously to get, a, to get a documentary done, you have to, I mean, you have to do it and you can't, oh, yeah. like, and you have to, and you can and you do have to put it like a, some form of time limit, some sort of yep. even content limit on it. Otherwise, yeah. Yep. I mean, otherwise it's a different project. I haven't there, talked about my editor yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of showing, because you had done that, was there any, um, like input from the, the community on where they want it? shown or was it kind of they were just let's get it done and let's show it I yeah think. so um when I was there with the with the fine cut and we had the feast etc the the last day I was just touring around saying goodbye to people and uh, and the chief was coming out of a meeting I'd, I'd actually been wanting to see him and I said to him um so what I'm going to do is try and get this in some film festivals and show at some universities would you be willing I'll be there, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so I, again, I felt really good about that. Like it's, it's, somebody also asked me about any kind of negativity that has come from the community in relation to this. Now there may be some, but I haven't heard any, and I'm used to hearing when people are not happy with what's going on. Not a single word. People just seem really pleased, um, both with the substance of the film and with the fact that it exists and that it's getting shown. Now, I mean, I have given copies of the film to various people that have been down here. It's one of the things I should be doing today is making <laughs> sure that all the people that have, you know, contributed to the film are getting their copy of the film. So I'm sending it back as much as possible. It's also being distributed here by V-Tape. And what I'm wanting to do with that is um, in a couple of university libraries have already bought it. And, uh, and taking any profit that comes from that and putting it towards a scholarship for uh, an Escapa kid in the Jimmy Sandy Memorial School, which is their school there, to encourage them to think about media studies. So that's the idea. We'll see if there's enough money to do anything, but <laughs> even whatever, whatever little bits, you know, it'll be something to start that. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, so research methodology. I would have to say that I, I've spent a lot of time working with indigenous theoreticians and indigenous researchers. And so I draw a lot on what I've learned um, in terms of theorizing, in terms of putting names on, on the research methodology. So um, uh, uh, Verna Kirkness and Ray Barnhart have a very old article that's called The Four R's of First Nations Higher Education. And those easily translate, for me, easily translate into research methodology. It's been picked up by Joanne Archibald, another scholar from BC who I actually supervised. Um, and Maggie Kovach is a scholar from the University of Manitoba in Decree. Uh, Joanne is Stalo Nation. 
uh, Vernus, Vernus Cree as well. Um, and in that, I try and think about these four R's, and some they shift around and they can be various four R's, but reciprocity is absolutely central. So there has to be, whatever I'm taking out of here, there has to be payback. And I feel like I've been able to do that with this film. It's It's been gone really well. Respect. I. I have respect for indigenous cultures. My <laughs> um, respect, the I mean, with the Nescapi, the level of respect I have for what they have survived, it's incredible. And never mind, never mind colonization. Just the living in that climate that they live in. We haven't talked about listening to the land, but you know, they have to listen to the land, or you starve to death. So respect, um, reciprocity, respect, um, relevance. So there should be some significance in the work that's being done. Uh, relevance both within the community but also beyond the community what is what is the relevance of this and I forget what the third one is I guess it's research <laughs> reciprocity oh relationships relationships of course and that's where I started is actually you have to have the relationships be uh, as fundamental to, to what goes on in the in the work that's being done so if I were to characterize the ethnographic work I want to do it would be drawing on those principles out of indigenous methodologies want to talk about appropriation uh, <laughs> <laughs> not yet okay. <laughs> okay. unless you're unless you're prime no no that's it. fine I could talk about it anytime <laughs> okay because um, I, I hopefully this does again segue into from that um, because when you're saying I, the, when you mentioned the title, and then like, oh, I can probably come up with a question, a unique question that. But to get into that, in terms of the interviews, in terms of like the actual filming of it, because um, again, I haven't seen it, so I don't. Um, were people was I, I guess the easiest way was would it be conceived or? Was it like a formal, like, hi, call you up, can we come over, film you? Or was it people, like, in terms of the participants and the terms of the people talking, is it, you had said talking head before, is it people sitting talking or is it people out like, hey, I'm doing this, you can come talk to me, uh, follow me around yeah. and... Or is it a mix of that? And it's a mix. Okay. It's a mix. Yeah, it's a mix of people walking around it's a, of, uh, and talking. And uh, a lot of it is sit-down interviews, partly to do with, you know, the li limited time that we had there, but also because there were certain things that I really wanted to get at. And the things I wanted to get at, I hoped, were based on what I'd learned from the time that I'd been in the community. So uh, caribou are central to Nescapi culture and always have been. Um, they continue to be, caribou continues to be a really important dimension of the culture, but there are fewer actual physical caribou wandering around in the middle of the community, which had been the case up until about 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, again, though, caribou go in, in uh, cycles, right? So sometimes there's a lot of caribou, sometimes not so much. And this has been the Nescapi's lives over all of these years. Um, so the idea of the of the land being integral to who the Nescapi are and were is inescapable. I mean, to live in, in weather that's 40 below and the wind blows, the, the cameras don't function. I mean, you can get out of the truck for five minutes and you have to get back in the yeah. truck and warm the cameras again because everything seized up, as you probably are aware. <laughs> um, the, the other piece is that open pit iron ore mining is also land related. So how, 
how can people think through that contradictory existence of commitment to caribou, traditional culture on that land. The Naskapi re refer to themselves as being traditionally nomadic. They use that word themselves. They moved all over that land. They're now limited in their movements. They're now settled, speaking of unsettled hunters. Mm -hmm. These are these are hunters who are unsettled by settlement, I would say. Um, you know, again, that nice kind of complex situation. Um, and so in terms of listen to the land, partly it's coming from me and my upbringing and how I was taught to think about land as a primary relationship. And partly it has to do with putting some words to what the Nescapi have always lived. So that's kind of where listen to the land comes from. Yes, I did ask people to sit down for interviews. And I have to say, I think if I sat down with Nescapi for interviews now, they'd be richer and deeper and more interesting because the relationship has grown mm -hmm. over time. Um, but that being said, obviously there were, there was lots in what was said by the talking heads that uh, got to the, the heart of the matter and got to the heart of the matter in a way that the Nescapi find acceptable and more. So that makes me happy. <laughs> so listen to the land then as a title, is it, um, I'll just ask, where does it come from? Because I mean, because I can, I can envision it being, it's a, in many ways, it's such, with you know, having no, like this is the first interaction, like it's such a, uh, a uh, it's a title with depth mm -hmm. because it could be, you know, it could be a, an admonishment, it could be a question, it could be, and you know, it could all, it's also very uh, poetic, um, it, it's all very, and then. Even deeper than that, right? Like it's also, yep. a, as you had said before, it's epistemological. Yep. So, was is it, did it, was it a title that you or that you and the the team had thought about, or just it kind of came out uh, as a, hey, this is this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I designed and teach a course in the faculty of education called Pedagogy of the Land. Okay. I was raised by a father who was a fly fisherman who spent his life writing books on fly fishing and the philosophical dimensions that inform a fly fisherman. Um, and it's all about interrelationships. So, and, and it's way beyond, you know, it's way beyond standing in the river casting. It's all about the mountainsides and protecting the forests so that the roots hold the banks in place so that the oxygen can get to the little eggs under the gravel, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really raised with a deep, deep understanding of the importance of land and rivers, no question. My father fought the, he successfully fought a dam on the Fraser River at some point. He lost some battles for dams, which led to devastation in our household. So it's always been kind of integral to who I am. Um, I teach a course called Pedagogy of Land, as I say. So when I went to work with the teachers in the schools, and I was aware enough that their caribou were an integral part of traditional culture and now there was open pit mining. It seemed to me that those, that idea of listening to the land, which was what the, uh, the research project was initially called and what the community accepted as a research project, mm. really fit with the situation that the Nescapi were living. Um, this, this total, um, total deep connection to land, to, um, to the caribou, to the berries, to the, to, to the geese, to everything, to the fish, everything around them. And yet this other connection to land of the mines, which, um, I mean, listen to the land. 
what does the land say when you rip it open and tear the ore out? Well, it gives you a way of living. It gives you a livelihood. It gives you. It allows you to stay in a community together, which without that kind of economic support, you wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a it's a really complicated, contradictory, and yet fundamental, fundamental piece. The the other point that comes out of the film itself is that. This is not a this is not a lesson for the Nescapi. This is a lesson for all of us, right? You know, we really need to be paying attention to land. People are now talking about truth and reconciliation. My bottom line is we need to reconcile our relationship with the land. And while there's obviously all kinds of economic aspects and reconciliation of land ownership, no. The my indigenous teachers and my parents have taught me. You don't own the land. We're here for a minute. We're we better take care of it if we want, you know, any kind of succession to occur. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for your description of what listen to the land means to you because that's oh. what I would hope. Okay. That's really what I would hope. All of what you said, it's it's really intentional, and it is selected by me, but highly approved by the community. Right. I yeah. Nobody. Nobody hesitated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, then in terms of. Um, Oh, content oh, <laughs> of yeah. the of, of the film, and um, or not necessarily content, uh, so to speak. Like, not doesn't mm -hmm. have to be specifics. Um, what in ter I guess the best way to put it was with that the content come after, like I, like through the editing process. Obviously, the content came through. The interviews and mm -hmm, stuff but mm -hmm. i mean like in terms of how the film came together as a film as opposed to a project of mm -hmm, interviewing mm -hmm. and filming so um it like how did how did that i assume that i assume the interviews and that that led the film or was there was there an idea of what the film would be before yeah. i mean again yeah there has to That's be some idea because because again you could spend years yeah, yeah. <laughs> without a Definitely. without some idea yeah but no, I definitely had some ideas. I mean, you have to, to write a research grant and you have yeah. to in order to present to chief of council yeah. what it is that you're doing. So in the time that I had spent in the community, and I mean, as soon as I got there, I started, or even before I got there, I started to try and understand who are, who is this community, who are the people, what's their history, etc. So the history is completely fascinating. Um, and it involves, of course, the Hudson's Bay Company and uh, the move away from caribou hunting to trapping as a source of economic survival. Um, the move where trapping is leading to people becoming then involved with the Hudson's Bay Post, trading for flour and tea and sugar, etc. Um, but then also leading to really serious um, situations where if the um, the animals that were being trapped, but you can't eat those animals for the most part. There's not much to eat compared to a caribou. So if the animals being trapped were scarce because of the fluctuation in their populations, there were occasions when the Nescapi could no longer get ammunition from the trading post because mm. they didn't have furs to trade, and then they couldn't hunt, and they starved. There, and it's in the film, there were literally times when they starved because the Hudson's Bay people would say, nope, you don't have any furs, not giving you any ammunition, you guys are just lazy. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a really fraught history, totally fascinating, and one of survival. And when the Hudson's Bay Company posts were, were closing, the people were encouraged, coerced, who knows quite what, to move from the, um, up by Angava Bay, which is where they were living, Fort McKenzie and, and Fort Chimo, 
to Shefferville where the Iron Ore Company of Canada was opening those mines. And they went down there to become miners. Yeah, they were not that enthusiastic a lot of the time about being miners, but they were there and so uh, that kind of happened. So the history is a really important dimension of it and I can go into more of the history if you want, but it's a really important dimension of the film and a really important dimension of the of the stories that people tell themselves. It's, it, it keeps them sane and whole, that they, they understand fully who they are and where they came from. The language, obviously, as I said, that was one of the things that just drew me in and impressed me to begin with because it was so such a vibrant language. One of the things I said to the editors, I want to have a whole bunch of the film that's just in the scappy, and if you can't speak the scappy, you don't get to understand it. He wouldn't let me do that, but <laughs> I thought it would be fun. Like without... Yeah, without, without even subtitles. subtitles. Yeah, I didn't want subtitles. I have subtitles now. Yeah. <laughs> Probably better. But I thought that would be fun. Um, and then, uh, so the, the, what was I saying? History, the language, um, the land, obviously, and the, the whole business of, of mining and the land and how that's getting worked through. And uh, the other piece that came in there was Christianity. There's uh, there's some people that are working on traditional spirituality. There are a couple of Christian religions operating, and Christianity plays a big role. The Anglicans are the ones who uh, missionize the the people, and there still is a church there. It's held every every Sunday. The services are all in Nescapi. The deacon is a, one of the Nescapi people, um, and there's been you know all of the translation stuff that's gone on has ties to the uh, to the Bible translation, but the person involved has become very committed to teaching literacy and the language and has worked with the student teachers and who are now teachers to help them work with the kids in the schools, etc. So it's a, again, it's the, the tensions and contradictions I find totally fascinating. So those are pieces that came, they, they were questions that I addressed in the interviews, but they were questions I addressed in the interviews because they were things that I had seen in the community as I'd spent that couple of years doing the work with the schools, etc. Um, so yeah, that influenced a lot, the structure of the film. Now, the other big piece was the editor. And the editor, I didn't know the editor before I started working with him. He had worked with Shane, the director of photography previously. Shane hooked me up with him. I interviewed a couple of other editors, but this just seemed to make sense. And he and I made an amazing team. And he was the one that said, you have to put yourself in here. You have to be in this film. And I was really hesitant. I, National Geographic has a, an article this month. My partner gets National Geographic. I'm never sure why. <laughs> um, but there's a whole thing on the Amazon and the disappearing tribes of the Amazon. It's like, oh my God, we're still into this same mentality. And there sits the white guy. I don't know if he's the editor who he is because I just looked at it this morning as I was leaving the house, sitting in the middle of a whole bunch of brown Amazonians. And I thought, frick, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> I do not want to be. There's a, there's a big blonde anthropologist who did it a number of years ago and he stars in his own films and all the little brown people around him. So I just, I really didn't want to do that. Uh, it's not like that. I, I you know, it's more, much more uh, a, a real look at what it means to be a white researcher with an indigenous community, um, and then actually placing myself in and, and talking about some of the things I've already talked to you about about what my background is and what's led me to to doing this work. So that was really the editor that I hadn't anticipated doing that, and we actually did some footage here in Toronto to uh, to add to the to the piece of kind of framing it and declaring this is a relational film. It's not a, it's not a film about the Nescapi. It's a film with the Nescapi. 
but it's my story. It's my story of the Nescapi with with the Nescapi people. Interesting. Yeah. It, <laughs> it works, I think. You have to see the film. Yeah, see yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But because I think, um, without going too far down that road, I think that's one of the, one of the things, like the, it is building that relationship that is key and because, and one of the limits of like academics is, is that it comes from a tradition of objectivity yeah, yeah, and yeah. observation where that is somehow violates the knowledge produced mm-hmm. if you're not objective or mm-hmm. observing from a, you know, whatever, an agreed upon position, it's, it, that knowledge is invalid or not yep. testable or rigorous or whatever. And so, um, but then the flip side of it is too, is that is how you position yourself in it because you don't, because it could easily be, or, may, or maybe that's just a like a, an anxiety, a, a useful one to make sure that the film isn't about, you know, as you said, it isn't it isn't the white researcher surrounded by yeah, yeah, yeah. the community or the or the, and it doesn't have to be indigenous people in any sense. It mm-hmm. can happen with any yeah, yeah, totally, any, any, any researcher, even yeah, if the even any. if a power relationship isn't historically mm-hmm. imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I mean I think um, not that or anything but I mean it's an but 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 it's an interesting um, process to me to figure out how you build that relationship Mm -hmm. and so I think do you uh, get the if there's a question (laughs) out of all that do you do you think the medium of film allows that easier or like to to demonstrate that relationship because it's an audiovisual medium or like or or different just 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 it's a really different uh it's just a different genre, a different medium. I mean, the, the, one of the things that I really had to do was learn how to write narrative because there's a lot of narrative in the film. The, um, the, the interviews themselves were not really, they, they, they might have been able to, if we'd, if we'd edited in a particular way, they might have been able to carry the whole thing. But it made way more sense because this was so much what I was tr- understanding about the Nescaping, who they were, it really required me to do some narrative over top of, um, or in relation, sorry. I shouldn't say over top of. Ed- edit that out. <laughs> you can leave that in. Yeah. I'd say edit that out. <laughs> um, it, in relation to the Nescaping and what they were saying. Um, and the narrative, like when you say writing the narrative, like, oh, yeah, where you're, where, like you're like literally yeah. writing the narrative writing as opposed narrative. to, like that wasn't a metaphorical. No, it's writing narrative. It's, it's literally doing that. And it was, again, it was really interesting. And part of this incredible relationship with the editor, like it's, it's, in, it's huge what a difference this can make. So I was writing, I mean, you know, I tend to write kind of academic stuff. So I was writing kind of academic ways about the history. Well, that's not what narrative can look like in a film. <laughs> so then finally at some point, and the editor's name is Jordan O'Connor, Jordan said, go home and just write. Don't edit don't look at anything, just write what it is you're thinking about. And that was incredibly freeing and incredibly lovely. And then we would work back and forth on that whole thing. And then we had the day when we did the whole narrative for the film, because you need to keep your voice somewhat the same. Yeah. So we had to record all, all of the narrative. But uh, I found it really exciting to be doing that kind of writing. Um, but it's it's totally different from, from uh, academic writing, um, referee journal article type writing. Definitely, you can do that kind of work in a referee journal article. I have a doctoral student right now who's a humanities scholar, but she's also a poet. 
and she is writing her dissertation partly in poetry, a lot in poetry, but this is poetry that references every scholarly text you can imagine. So it's, it's phenomenal to see what happens when you move into a, a different genre and yet you're still insisting on scholarly rigorousness. I love that kind of messing with, uh, with scholarly work. I think, it's, uh, I think it has huge promise for, for where the work can go. And that's not to take anything away from referee journal articles. They, obviously, they yeah. do really important work. And I will continue to write referee journal articles <laughs> <laughs> in my spare time when I'm not making film. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, the, the kind of the quick question to that then, is it also, then that also, in terms of film as a medium of scholarly work, it's not, because I mean, I make these, you know, straw people characterizations mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the discipline, and mm-hmm. that's just kind of what I like to do, when, especially mm-hmm. when I'm talking to academics. Yes. it's fun to, it's fun to also be make fun of the, of the, the, the career and the, the yes. institution that you're part of, even yep. though even though sometimes you don't agree with a lot of it. Um, so, in terms of the like the like film is, is e- equal not the right word, but it, there's no. I like, think it's a legitimate form of scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> I um, you have to remember, I'm also the associate vice president of research, so I've now been part of working on two strategic research plans. And one of the things that we've been insisting on, and I think I've probably played a significant role in this, is recognizing that creative scholarly productivity is scholarly productivity. So it's not, you know, it's not there's research over here and there's publication and then there's this other stuff. It's part of what scholars do. They study and they work and they produce. And I mean, good films, films involve research films involve serious rigorous work to do the thing well so I see it as a perfectly appropriate perfectly appropriate form of scholarly productivity and at the same time and it's back to what I was saying about getting the word out there research impact I mean if we if we sit in our little rooms and the and the world out there never hears about what it is we're doing or never thinks about what we're doing it's it's a shame, you know. And again, not to take away from the research that is really significantly um, limited in its focus, and yet at the same time is has huge depth and and contributes to other forms of research or other other um, aspects of a of a disciplinary field. Not to take away anything from that, but I am really keen on the university having impact beyond its walls. Always have been. Always have. Been. And also, I would suspect, or I, without being too presumptuous in this case, too, um, the, like when you're working with people uh, with where there's a language difference, mm. like writing yes. in English is going to have, you know, it could be the most brilliant or impactful piece. But if you're to go back to the relation, if it's already, if it's cut out, it, it won't have that. Yeah, yeah. It will have no, or very limited access because it. I could send the scholarly articles back to the community, but I don't think the chief has time to read that. Well, <laughs> you know, but he'll come to the film, and he'll show the film. But yeah, yeah. One of the things I like to do to wrap up because we have been over an hour, so so thank you for that because it's been quite lovely. One of the things I like to ask uh, all uh, people that I talk to is if they have a, a hunting or fishing or working, living on the land story that they'd like to share 
and it can be a and it can be a true fishing story in the sense of you know you uh, <laughs> you caught a fish uh, I'm mimicking you know it can be an exaggerated story or not because I like that type of <laughs> <laughs> I think that's another valid form of <laughs> knowledge as well so do you well I I mean I, and it yeah. can be anything it doesn't have to be specific doesn't have to, to be related the... to this I mean I have to say we have some great stories of the goose hunt because oh, yeah. the goose hunt was pretty exciting the director of photography the night before we were to go out on the goose hunt came to me and he said I am not driving a skidoo on that lake <laughs> and I said oh never mind it'll be fine somebody will drive the skidoo you don't have to do that so we got to the that morning we had already been down there now the lake you have to understand has open water because the geese are landing there right and what time lake, of year is it this is May okay April May this is late April early May I think it was early May when we were there it also has about this much water on a lot of the lake. <laughs> and people are driving their skidoos all over and they got their blinds set up and they're shooting geese. <laughs> so we get, to the, uh, we get to the day that we're going out onto the lake with the camera equipment and all. And, uh, and the guys come out and, and um, so one guy says, okay, well, Celia and the research assistant can ride on my skidoo, Robin Chicanafish, can ride on my skidoo with me. It's already three people on a skidoo. It's insane, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Shane, you and Tony, the sound guy, will take that other skidoo. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not even looking at him. I can't even look at him because I don't look at him. And he goes, okay. And away we go. So he's following along behind. I'm thinking, Nascapi Hunter, he must know what he's doing. We're not going to go through the ice. Everything will be fine. So it was a very exciting day of uh, driving around on skidoos. And then my favorite moment was when they were a bit behind us and we were coming across a whole lot of bumpy, watery ice, whatever. And Robin pulled up on the, on the bank, on the snow bank, on an island that's right there. And Shane and Tony came pulling up behind us a little bit later. And they came up on the side and they said, <laughs> they're just gonna do it right over sideways so that was exciting but the other thought I had when you first said that was yesterday I was walking my dog um, and I was going by the Humber River because we live down by the Humber and there was a guy fishing and my father as I said was a fly fisherman I've never been that excited about catching fish but I love rivers and I love standing in rivers and I like casting and he's taught me really well how to cast so I was looking out and there's this guy who's casting and he's kind of going like this and like this and the line's not really doing much anyway. and I said to the person I was walking with oh my god nobody's taught that guy how to cast I need to go down there and give him a few lessons you got to have that wrist in there and you flick back here to 11 o'clock no further and then send it out straight <laughs> so that's my fishing story from yesterday <laughs> I really that's, wanted to teach the guy I didn't go down there I'm embarrassed awesome. but <laughs> I ain't got that I can cast <laughs> do you have your own I have, I do. I have fly rods there from my father, and they're beautiful bamboo handmade, made for Roderick Haig Brown fishing rods. And I don't go fishing. It's a shame, eh? Taught my kid to cast, one, <laughs> one kid. Maybe the grandchildren, somebody will go fishing. I hope so. <laughs> I'm into horses. Okay. I'm into horses. I love horses. I've had horses my whole life. I don't have horses now. I just, in Portugal, got on a beautiful horse down on the beach. and it was fabulous I, that's mostly what my life has been in relation to the land it's being on a horse out in wherever you name it I've been there well I think that's a that's it perfect place to end okay so thank you very much you're welcome <laughs>